good morning, and we are glad that you're here. When I say we're glad that you're here, what I mean is this is the context this morning where I'm convinced that the God of the cosmos wants to connect and communicate with you in some way that as hard as I have tried, I'm sure I have not been able to really grasp nor gather the enormity of how God specifically wants to deal with every single one of you as an individual, and then amazingly by his sovereignty, us collectively as a group of people who are gathered. So just want to set your expectations accordingly. The sovereign God of the universe who is good and who loves you wants to speak to you. So may we, your servants, O Lord, be listening. As Matt has already mentioned, it is Halloween, and it doesn't happen all that often that Halloween falls on a Sunday morning. Halloween's got a little bit of a different uh, connotation, a denotation. A lot of people in church don't know quite what to make with Halloween. Is it threatening? Is it gross? Is it frightening? Is it demonic? What are all those things? But a quick lesson in history, just to let you know. All Hallows' Day was probably an ancient Celtic pagan harvest festival that the very early church takes and they reappropriate, they re-engineer to say, hey, we're going to talk about the harvest that God's doing with the saints, the saints who have been planted, who have gone before us, and that we would be saints. It didn't take long after that Christianization in the early part of the Middle Ages that All Hallows' Day began to be celebrated the night before as they were talking and fixating on the things of the dead. Pretty soon it got pretty creepy and people began to wear costumes to look like all sorts of insane, not good, unholy things. For example, I don't get to do this very often, but because it's Halloween, I dressed up this morning. This morning, I decided to come to church as a mid-tribulation rapture pastor. <laughs> I know, it's super creepy, but just, just try to get past the disguise. I don't really believe that, but just, it's a costume, right? We've been in the book of Genesis where we learned last week about a 75-year-old guy who apparently was not too old to wear a disguise. This Jacob, who dressed up in goat skin and false voice and all sorts of pretense, trying to be someone else. We're going to continue in our sermon series in the book of Genesis this morning. I'll invite you to turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 28, reminding you, the book of Genesis and the four books that follow are written by Moses to a people, that is the Israelites, some 1500 BC, to tell them who their God is. He is Yahweh. He is the is one. He is the one that is. He is not only the sovereign king and creator of the cosmos, he is very particularly the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He is their God. And we've learned a lot about this trajectory of the patriarchs as Abram is 75 years old when he's sitting in what is modern Babylon and Mesopotamia in Ur of the Chaldeans and he's called out and God says I'm going to use you to be the instrument of redemption to a broken and fallen world because the first 11 chapters of Genesis is all about human violence and struggle and fallenness and brokenness and death but you, Abram, you're going to be the solution. Why? Because you're 75, you're married to a barren wife, and you worship the moon. And that's not typically how you start the redemption of the world, but God says, you're my guy. Why? Because I say so, because he is a God of sovereign choice. And we've heard that he's 75, he receives the promise of the Old Testament. You will be the recipient, you and your offspring of land, offspring and blessing. And immediately, Abram blows it. You ever been there? You had a moment where you and the Lord just seemed to be walking lockstep. If there was such a thing as hopscotch in heaven, you'd be playing. And the next thing you know, you're face down on your own failure and sin. I've been there. 
Abram continues to mess up, and yet God provides the promised offspring, Isaac. Itzach, his name means laughter. It takes a while, but Isaac finally gets married at the age of 40, when all males should be getting married in the 21st century. After his wedding at the age of 40, he waits 20 more years, and at the age of 60, he has twins, Jacob and Esau. Esau, this red, hairy hunter. Jacob, this slick-as-a-fruit-roll-up guy who dwelled in tents and played video games. And God says, I'm going to bless the younger one. And there's all sorts of trickery and deceit and all sorts of manipulation and guile. And all of that swindling gains them nothing and they lose everything. At the end of chapter 27, Rebekah, the mother of Jacob and Esau, convinces Isaac to send Jacob away, off to Haran. The name is even unpleasant and uninviting. The name Haran means parched. It sounds like that sound you make when you drink a hot Dr. Pepper, parched, Haran. It's just not, it's not pleasant. That's not where you want to have to go. We're introduced into chapter 28 where Rebecca and Isaac are finally talking again. They are not laughing, but at least they're having a conversation. And they say, we need to send Jacob away. He cannot marry from the Canaanite women. The Canaanite women are polytheists. They're pagans. They do not worship El Shaddai. We must send him away. And so Isaac goes along with it, and they send Jacob away, and she will never see Jacob again. He's gone for 20 years. In the meantime, dun-dun-dun, meanwhile, back at the Hall of Stupidity, is Esau. Esau happens to overhear that Rebekah and Isaac don't like Canaanite chicks. It just now dawns on him that he's already married two Hittite women, Judith and Basemath. And so he says, I know what I'll do. I'll marry myself a monotheist woman too. And so what does he do? He goes and finds one of the daughters of Ishmael. For those of you scoring at home, let me remind you. This is Ishmael, the half-brother of Isaac, whose mother was an Egyptian. Ishmael's wife was a Canaanite, and they have a daughter. And Esau says, I know, I think I'll marry her. Maybe she's a monotheist. Esau's spiritual gift is taking a terrible situation and making it much, much worse. Esau's the guy that when he sees a grease fire in the kitchen, he throws gasoline on it. This is what he does. And that's how we leave Esau. Meanwhile, Genesis chapter 28, beginning in verse 10, we're going to see the refrain again and again and again that God is faithful. Whatever else you might think about God, that he's smart, that he's shiny, that he's strong, all true, but above and beyond all of that is that God is faithful. So walk with me through Genesis chapter 28, beginning in verse 1. Oh, sorry, beginning in verse 10. Genesis 28, beginning in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba. Now, we have a tendency in the 21st century in East Texas, where we say par, we have a tendency to yada, 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 right past these place names. But we mustn't. Beersheba is in the very south of Israel, in the Negev wilderness. It's a very harsh, arid climate. And yet, Abraham found blessing there. He dug wells in the desert, and God provided water. Isaac dug wells in the desert, and God provided water. And so Beersheba means the well of seven, or the seven wells, or the well of blessing. This is where Isaac and his household are permanently encamped, at least for the time being. Jacob leaves Beersheba and went toward Haran. Oof, he goes to Parched. Now, that might not sound much to us, but from Beersheba in the very, very south of Israel all the way up to Haran, which is in Mesopotamia, that is a 500-mile journey. It's a long way to go. Verse 11, And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night. 
Now, what we're going to find is that Jacob has made his way all the way to what will ultimately be called Bethel. Now, Bethel is 50 miles from Beersheba. You get the impression that Jacob is afraid for his life because Esau has said, I'm going to kill that boy. As soon as my dad dies, I'm going to kill Jacob. Well, the problem was Isaac didn't die for another 45 years. That's a long wait. Generally speaking, in antiquity, you could make a journey of about 25 miles in a single day. You get the impression that Jacob, afraid for his life, gets up early and leaves. And not only does he leave early, he walks as, twice as fast as he normally would. Not only that, he goes as, twice as far as he normally would. He makes it all the way up 50 miles in a single day to this place, and he finally just conks out. Now, that's not an easy journey. If you know anything about Judean or Israeli topography today. You can travel along the coast. It's a flatter road, but that's the Mediterranean highway, and that's where the Philistines live, and they'll kill you dead. They don't negotiate. They ask questions after your corpse begins to smell. Or you can go a little further east on the King's Highway, and that's where all the desert peoples live. They will kill you dead in the face. And so you have but one option. There is a central road, kind of the interstate that goes right up through the country. It's called the Judean Arch, and it's kind of like walking through the Texas Hill Country. It's brutal. There is nothing but dirt and scorpion. That's pretty much all there is. And yet Jacob is able to cover 50 miles as he's traveling over this Judean arch. He came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. See, Moses is a great storyteller, a wonderful narrator. It was a dark and stormy night. It gets dark. Things are about to get spooky. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head, Let's see, no, that's a scorpion. No, that's a snake. Ooh, a stone. That'll have to do. Remember, Jacob likes to play video games. He dwells in tents. He, he knits wonderful sweaters. He has no idea how to live outside. And he's found himself out with nothing. He didn't even have the presence of mind as he leaves in haste to grab something soft. He doesn't even know what socks are yet. He can't sleep on those. And so he finds a stone. Now, I don't know how tired you've been, but sleeping on a rock, that's a bad night's sleep. All he can find. His brother Esau would have been prepared. It's just that he's about as dumb as a ham sandwich. And so here's Jacob out in the wilderness with nothing to sleep on but a stone. He took a stone of that place. He put it under his head and he laid down in that place to sleep. Notice that there's nothing to script about this place. It's just out in the wilderness, out in the wild. Verse 12, and yet he dreamed. I've always been interested by that. How do you just lay down on a rock and go to sleep? Well, if you've hoofed it 50 miles in a day, you're probably a little bit sleepy. And you didn't have the presence of mind to bring a Lunchable. You're socked out. You're totally out of gas. And he dreamed. Now, you have to understand, in the Old Testament, when someone takes a, a nap and they go to, into a trance or a dream-like state, something marvelous and miraculous is going to happen. Moses is trying to connect with the people of Israel to say, your forefather Jacob your forefather Jacob was right here. He would have experienced this. I want you to know this about you, your people, and I want you to know this about your God. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. Now, most of your translations are going to say ladder. That's because that's an old English word. It's not the correct translation. It's way more than a ladder. A ladder is narrow and skinny, and really one person can be on it at a time. That's not this word. The word is shulam. And it really happens no place else in our Bible. Shulam has this idea of a major earthen ramp 
that you might see uh, like the Roman army would build a shulam as they're trying to take a city, as they're building up this earthen ramp to try to go over the walls of defense. Or you might think of a, a massive, massive palace with this humongous sweeping staircase. That's a shulam. You might think, if you were of a certain age, going to Montgomery Wards and seeing the escalator for the first time and thinking, dear God, he's real. It's more like an escalator because there's moving parts, it's enormous, and it seems to go for a very long time. And there was a shulam set up on the earth. Now, that little expression on the earth has the idea that Jacob is laying there on the stone, and it's not just, oh, it's in Montana. No, no, it comes to like right there. Like, okay, that's unmistakable. It's on the earth, on the earth on which he is laying. It comes right to him. You have to understand that. It is set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were hmm, ascending and descending. You sort of get the impression that they should be coming down and then going back up. But no, apparently, they've already been on the earth, ascending, concluding their ministries, and others are coming to do their ministries. What is God saying? I am faithful. You have nothing but animosity behind you. You have nothing but anxiety in front of you. And you think you're all alone. And you're not looking for me, but I'm coming to you. Because I am Yahweh. I am El Shaddai. I am Jehovah Roi. I am the God who sees. I am the Almighty. And I am the God of your father Abraham. And I am the God of your father Isaac. And then he stops. Behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. Now, it's more likely, and the Lord stood by him. So Jacob, in this dreamlike, sedated trance, almost like a coma, kind of like when Abraham has the covenant struck, kind of like when Adam is put to sleep and Eve is produced. Jacob's not moving, but he's cognizant, but it's in a trance-like thing. Not only does he see heaven open and angels ascending and descending, but Yahweh himself is standing next to him. Hey, Jake. How's your mom and them? What's going on? He's right there next to him. The Lord stood next to him or above it and said, I am Yahweh. I am that which is. I am Yahweh. I am the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Jacob wasn't even wondering. He was just trying to save his skin. He was just trying to get out of a bad situation. You ever been there? Of course you have. This text is for you. Verse 14, your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and the east and to the north and to the south. Your geography will increase. Your influence will increase. And Jacob's going, I didn't even bring cheese. How are you going to do this? I, I, look, I'm so unworthy. I'm a liar. I'm a cheater. I'm a swindler. I'm a deceiver. I don't even know if what I'm saying right now I fully believe. You ever been there? Jacob has. I have. Verse 15, or it continues on in verse 14, sorry. In your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Just like your grandfather Abram, who was 75 when I called him out of Ur. Jacob, you're about 75 now. 
not only am I going to redeem you and your mess, I'm going to use you as the conduit and the vessel and the superhighway of the redemption of all the peoples in the world. Verse 15, behold, I am with you. One of the greatest expressions in your Bible. You might make a quick little note. If you're not the kind of person that puts little notes in your Bible, become the kind of person that puts little notes in your Bible. This is a very early, 900-year early Psalm 23. I am your shepherd. I am with you. I will cause you to lay down in green pastures, and I am with you. I think perhaps even David has this in mind some nine centuries later when he writes the shepherd's song. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now, you and I are supposed to see this man leaving from Beersheba in the very south of Israel as he travels north, north, north before he hangs a left and heads into Haran. As he's past Jerusalem and he's going north, 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 and then he takes a left and he starts to head east, it's supposed to call to mind another time when a Jewish person named Saul of Tarsus was departing Jerusalem, heading to Damascus, which would have been on the route that Jacob would have taken. When the Lord appeared to him as well, this Saul of Tarsus running hard in the wrong way, but in Acts 9, he says, Saul, I'm here for you. You are going to be the instrument of redemption because this is the kind of God that we serve. He is the God of Abraham and Isaac and now Jacob and then Saul, Nepal. Question is begged, is he the God of you? Let's keep watching. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And no, that does not mean God's going to finish up the blessing and be like, deuces, that was fun. See you in heaven. No, 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 no. I'm going to keep working. Whether or not you feel it, whether or not you notice it, whether or not you're seeking it, I am God. I am faithful. I'm doing a thing. Verse 16. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. That is a central verse for all of our lives. No matter what you've been into, no matter what you've not been into, you and I can confess with clarity and confidence, Surely the Lord was in this place, and I did not know it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wonderfully said, When we sin, it's not so much that we hate God, it's that we choose to forget him. But surely the Lord is in this place. Wherever you go, you can't outkick his coverage. You cannot outdrive his headlights. Surely the Lord is in this place, and you did not know it. And he was afraid. Well, it was awestruck wonder. It was the children of Israel in Exodus 19 at Mount Horeb who were horrified at the presence and the glory and the grandeur and the splendor of God. It is Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and I said, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and I'm coming undone. That's what Jacob experiences, and it transformed everything. Jacob had heard an awful lot about this God. He'd heard his grandfather talk about it. Jacob was 15 when Abraham died. He'd certainly heard his father Jake, uh, Isaac talk about it. Probably not enough. But now, Jacob was seeing this God, hearing from this God himself. And he was filled with awestruck wonder. And he said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. 
Bethel means the house of God. And yes, in fact, this is why our church is called Bethel, the house of God. But it has nothing to do with brick and mortar. It has to do with those people who are the dwelling of the Lord God Almighty in this age. It's people. This is the house of God because God moved from being someone else's God to his God, and he knew that he was in the house of God. But there's more going on here, and it's nuanced, but we have to spend just a little bit of time here. He says there at the end of verse 17, and this is the gate of heaven. That finishes a bracket, a great grand parenthesis that began way back in Genesis chapter 11. That term gate of heaven is a technical term. You might remember at the end of chapter 11, the conclusion of half of human history, when violence has erupted, the people of Ur decided we're going to build a ziggurat, a tower. And this tower is going to extend to heaven, and that term babili means gate of heaven. Their thought was if we build a structure gorgeous enough, we build a structure glorious enough, the outside of it, the physicality of it will be in this world. But as you go in, in, into the center part, that little inner chamber actually forms a dimensional conduit to the spirit world. And so that's why they said a ziggurat, but more specifically, a vertical ziggurat that would have a connection. You think about a ziggurat or the Tower of Babeli that they're trying to build in chapter 11. Think of it as like they're trying to build the wardrobe in Narnia where you open the door and suddenly there's one foot and there's a goat man, but over here there's a train going by. One foot in heaven, one foot in earth, one foot in the splendor, one foot in the normal. That's what a ziggurat was trying. They were saying, we will build a babili. We will have a portal to heaven ourselves in Canaan. God says, oh, no, 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 no. Wrong again. He confuses their language and he scatters them out. Jacob says, this is Bethel. This is babili. God himself has shown me that this is the gate of heaven, not in Ur, it's in Canaan, just like he promised my forefather Abram in Ur. God's done it, and he's used that genealogy of Abraham and Isaac and now Jacob, and he's done it in this geography. He has made the portal where one foot in heaven, one foot on earth, and as it turns out, it's a very small little tower indeed. Watch what happens next. This babili, this gate, very, inter- very intentionally. Verse 18, so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He at least had the presence of mind to bring some oil. Sunscreen saves, as they say. He takes his pillow and he sets up this tiny little pillow and he sets it up and that becomes babili, the house of God, the gateway to heaven. But please make no mistake, it has nothing to do with just that geography. Bethel, later, about a thousand years later, a bad king named Jeroboam is going to go and set up a golden calf in that site. So it's not about the location, it's about the meaning and the, the significance of who God is and what God does with his people. Well, moving on. Verse 9, he called the name of that place Bethel, Bethel, house of God. But Moses gives us a strange little detail. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, now this has tripped up people for thousands of years. It need not. This is not Jacob trying to negotiate. This is not Jacob still trying to barter with God. He's saying, in view of what you've just said and how I have seen, if this, then this is now how I shall conduct myself. He's not negotiating with God. People have said that all the time. No, not at all. 
Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and since he will and will keep me in this way and since he will that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be, there it is, my God. And Moses is saying, you guys, you guys, gather around, gather around, Israelites. We just came up out of Egypt. This is how he identified himself to me when I first met him. He called himself the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and all three of them were knuckle-dragging doofuses. And yet he loves them, and he identified himself with them, and he identifies himself with us, Moses is, and he identifies himself with us. And that's very good news. That's the gospel. And this stone, which I have set up for the pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Jacob is realizing finally at the age of 75, oh, he's my God. And this God is faithful above and beyond all I anticipated or expected or certainly above and beyond what I think I deserve. So what do we, uh, these mm, 3,800 years later, what do we pick up from all of this? Let me give you just some quick implications. None of these should come as shocking or new or novel, but stay with me. Number one, it goes like this. God is with you. Or let me, let me reemphasize to put the emphasis on the correct syllable. God is with you, or God is with you, or God is with you, or God is with you. I know that somewhere in your academic understanding, you get that. But do you really live as though that were true? This is why the angel that announces the birth to Mary, this innocent little girl in Nazareth, you shall call his name Emmanuel. He is the with us God. God's promise to Jacob involves every aspect of Jacob's life, his past life of scheming and deception, his present life in the midst of loneliness and anxiety, and his future life full of blessing and prosperity. All along the way, God is saying, I am with you, working for you, walking with you, even if you don't feel it. God has not given you and me a promise for prosperity. Can I just tell you that very, very bluntly? He has not promised you prosperity. Sometimes Jesus makes martyrs of folks. I know. Worst billboard ever, it's true. He doesn't promise us the kind of prosperity that he's promising to Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. But what he has promised is life everlasting and the eternal indwelling of his Holy Spirit, surrounded by God's people and equipped by God's word. What he has promised is life lived in the Spirit now, since Christ's finished work has provided redemption and reconciliation forever. We get to live in the benefit and the blessing and the bounty of his promise fulfilled already. You might hear that and go, eh, what else have you got? What else have you done for me lately? That would be a gross misunderstanding. All the blessing and bounty promised by God to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob has come to fruition on the global and the cosmic scale in Christ. Jesus is the promised seed and we, are, we as Christians find our identity in him. It's, it's ours because it's his. To put a fine point on it, it's not whether God is not with you, whether or not you are physically here at Bethel, the house of God, or not. In fact, it's really not about a, any specific geographic location. It's about is God with you, period. Bethel is about the condition of your heart and your mind where you hear from God. Summarize it this way. Bethel is where God stops being the God of somebody else and becomes yours. So can you rightly say God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Eric, and mean it. That's the invitation this morning. 
Second point goes like this, and this is very good news. You cannot disqualify yourself from God's grace. Oh, you've tried, and so have I. You cannot disqualify yourself from God's grace. Let's face it, in one way or another, we've all been there either in our thought life or in our relationships that we've torched or patterns or wreckage that we've made. We've all had the thought that this time God has finally had enough and he's so frustrated that he's just going to set me in time out until I learn my lesson. Is that what you think about when you think about God? Jacob had heard the promised word of God and yet he took matters into his own hands and he hurt lots of people along the way, especially those closest to him. And now he's all alone. But... This text, this wonderful narrative, is showing us and encouraging us that we cannot outrun God's gaze of grace no matter what. He is with us, regardless of how shadowy the valley of death is or it seems to be. He literally could not be closer than he is to you and me right now. This does not mean he will eliminate consequence, but it does mean he will enter into the consequence with you. And that's very good news. Third point, it's very simple. Leave, Luz. Leave Luz. There's no life in Luz. You can go there today. It looks like the Texas panhandle was set on fire. There's nothing in Luz. Leave Luz. Remember Luz, that Hebrew word that very cleverly, very coincidentally means crooked, devious, guile. That's what Luz means in Hebrew. It's the name of the place now where, near Hebron where Jacob first came that night and he renamed it Bethel, the house of God. When you are in Luz, you live according to the rules of a realm where God is not sovereign, but you are. And you are dangerously unqualified for that job. When you are in Luz, you have nothing but animosity and anger behind you and fear, unknown, anxiety ahead of you. When you're in Luz, you have no idea whatsoever that God is as close as he could possibly be, that he's chasing you, wooing you, calling to you, approaching you. When you're in love, all you can think about is getting what you need and what you feel entitled to, regardless of what God's plan for you is or what his promises actually are. When you're in love, you're there because of a series of bad choices that have produced what you think is an inevitable outcome of pain and frustration. But we leave love when we finally drop the default tendencies to scheme and craft and try to get our way. I can fix this. I can fix this. No, for all you're fixing, you're just esawing all over the floor. Stop it. You can't. We cannot solve our own problems. We leave Luz and we recognize that God is very near and that he is doing so much more at this very moment than we can ever perceive. See the shulam that Jacob sees. You'll notice he never approaches it. Perhaps you've heard this passage preached that you have to see Jacob's ladder, Jacob's escalator, and you have to work your way up. Far from it, Yahweh descends, and he is with me. Our God is faithful. Now, there's one final little part about this passage that you just can't understand Genesis 28 unless you see the New Testament's comment on this passage. You can lose your place in Genesis 28 and head hard right to the Gospel of John. We'll conclude with this. In the Gospel of John, beginning in chapter 1, I want you to look with me at verse 43. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 43. Early part of Jesus' earthly ministry as John's talking about this. The next day, this is after uh, the, the introduction of, John, of Jesus by John the Baptist. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. And when Jesus says that, that's generally a good idea to hop on the bus. 
Now, Philip was from Bethsaida. That's on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him, of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Let me put some more force behind that. Nathanael, it's him. It is him, the hope of centuries. It's actually him. We found him, the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one, the one the Spirit said would come, the one that Moses said we should listen to. It's him, it's him, it's him. You can't imagine the exhilaration they must have felt as they believed that this was the Messiah. Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He was like, you've been to White House, right? I mean, come on. That's kind of what he's saying. That wasn't cool, by the way. Philip said to him simply, come and see. I don't have to convince you. I just have to show you. Good evangelism right there. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no Jacob. Now, I know your Bible doesn't say that. It's the word for the name of Jacob. And Nathanael is stopped in his tracks. We find out that Nathanael has been under the fig tree. In Jewish culture, in Judaism, the fig tree is the place of meditation. And you get the sense that Nathanael is sitting under the fig tree going, what in the world is going on? I don't even have a stone for a pillow. How did Jacob do that? Why did God come to Jacob? Why did God come to Jacob and not me? Why did God reveal himself? Why, why are the Romans here? Why are they taxing us tooth and nail? What's going on? Behold, an Israelite indeed, Jesus says to him, in whom there is no Yaakov. There is no Jacob. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? How do you know that? This is why we know that Jesus was brilliantly observing the thoughts and the feelings of Nathanael. How do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, oh, I saw you, and I know exactly what you were thinking about. Ho, ho, ho. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. You don't say that to someone just because they happen to know what particular piece of vegetation under which you are reclining. Nathaniel knows that this man was in his mind, in his heart, in his very soul's meditation. Rabbi, you are the son of God. And when we say son of God, we don't merely mean God's baby. We mean you are the sendable self of God. It's you. You are the rightful king of Israel, the people who come from Jacob. Watch what Jesus says. Verse 50, Jesus answered him. Oh, you like that? You think that was something? Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on, not to, not from, on the Son of Man. Jesus says, Nathaniel, Jacob's ladder, it's me. I'm the bridge, Nathaniel. I am the gateway to heaven. I draw heaven to earth. I draw earth to heaven, and I've got you. I am the wardrobe, one foot in heaven, one foot on earth. I'm the God-man. It's me. Yes, I opened the way, but it's not just about a structure. I'm also, yes, the Lord, I am also the way and the truth and the life. I am the one who has done all the steps. There's no steps on this escalator. That's why I love that image, because you just stand. Every other religion says you have to somehow figure out a way to climb your way up. The, the eightfold path of Buddha, the pillars of Islam, all these other things. No, 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 Jesus says, I did it. 
I'm the steps. And at the cross, it is finished. There are no steps. Is he the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you? Because he's faithful. Bethel is where he stops being someone else's God, and he becomes yours. I pray it be the case. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus and his finished work that we need not strive nor scheme. We simply live in this side of the promise fulfilled, indwelled by your spirit, surrounded by your people, equipped by your word. May we live not in luz, but with the appreciation, the understanding, the recognition that we are in Christ and we lack for nothing. And so, Father, if there's anyone here this morning for whom you are not their God, that they are still trying to work their way through luz, would you reveal yourself to them? Would you comfort them with the truth that you are with them, that they can lay down their schemes and their plans and their deceptions and their costumes, even though it's Halloween, that instead may we be fully clothed by your son Jesus and indwelled by your spirit. For the rest of us, Father, as we tend to drift, and we all do, we like to linger in luz. Would you remind us that we belong to this community of faith that is the house of God and that we, walking around in our community, are the house of God. Therefore, we have every opportunity to be the instruments of redemption to bring influence for your kingdom's sake. Father, we pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.